Hey fam, welcome to another episode of the Myths That Make Us podcast. I'm your host, Eric Gotzi, and I want to start doing that thing that I hear other podcasters do where they basically talk about what the podcast is, because it does make sense. If you're a new listener and this is the first time that you're listening to the podcast and I don't explain what it is, maybe you have no idea. So the point of the Myths That Make Us podcast is to help you, the listener, and the guest when they come on identify the conscious and unconscious stories that they tell themselves about who they are and about what the world is. Because I think that, no, I believe that I know that the story that you tell yourself drastically affects the life that you experience. And so I want to help people become conscious of what that story is. On today's episode, we have Matt Cardone, He is a life mentor and a spiritual guide. He is a badass meditation teacher, and you'll hear his story in this podcast. And then he puts me through a meditation at the end, live, on the podcast. And I'll give you the inside scoop. I was on LSD, and I did see things. I did. It was awesome. (laughs) So I think, no. You guys will enjoy this podcast, um, Matt. It was a real, it was a real pleasure having you on. I can feel that you've done the work, and the story about the seawall inspires the fuck out of me, man. So thank you. And if you would like to help this podcast blossom into the beautiful budding lotus that it could be one day. The best way to do that is to go to iTunes and to leave a rating and review and to share this podcast with somebody you love. I love you. Thank you for listening. I hope you have a beautiful day. Namaste. Matt, thank you for coming on the podcast. And I know that we'll get into the details, but Meditation has been one of the foundational practices for me to just, you know, try to get through this life and to enjoy it and, you know, to feel, to hear the song and to do, to be more of a dancer than a doer. And, um, you know, that is something that you teach and that you help guide other people to connecting to. So I just want to say thank you for the work that you're doing. Well, thank you for having me on. It's a, it's an honor to be on your show, Eric. Thank you, brother. Uh, the question that I love to ask at the beginning to kind of just get a sense of where your psyche's at in time right now is let's say that you just finished a beautiful meditation where you entered into a flow state and then you, you know, got up, you went outside and I met you somewhere and I asked you, who are you? And, you know, what do you do in the world? And you're looking for my answer. So the idea of this, who are you, right? I just, I just wrote something about this. After I get out of meditations, I like to free write. I don't want, I don't want my pencil to leave the page. And yeah. it's these identities and the archetypes that I've, I've structured on myself. But who am I? The question of who am I is the, I, I like to think that I am the person who inspires transformation in the individual so that we can inspire change in the world. And that's the idea of what I do for my purpose in teaching meditation. I love it. How would your best friend describe you and what you do? My best friend would describe me um, 
we worked together. He, he started a nonprofit. His daughter has cystic fibrosis and she's 12 years old. And that's a, a, a disease that's terminal, that mucus builds up in the lungs. And um, unfortunately, most patients die from secondary diseases like pneumonia or bronchitis. And right. I, I built a program within the medical community to teach um, CFers uh, meditation to try and alleviate some of the stresses, the anxiety and depression that they incur um, based on their, their daily treatment protocol. I mean, some of them have um, you know, eight to 10 hours of treatment every day just to stay alive, to extend life. Whoa. And um, so I, I, I think he would think that with my ability to step into that and meet people where they're at, you know, working with CF patients has been such a learning experience for me in regards to the fact that there's almost a termination date that they know is coming. And the average person their number one fear is not death, but the fear of unknown what happens after you die, the fear of, of not knowing, right? Yeah. And so there's this acceptance of when I work with these patients that they're just living each day, each moment to the most vibrant ability that they can. And then that really inspires yeah. some of that within myself. And so I think he sees some of that Absolutely. and recognizes it and and we have a we have a close bond, so I don't know if that answers your question, but that's how I feel about it. It does. How would your romantic partner, your intimate partner, describe you and what you do? So right right before she she was heading down today to uh, meet with some girlfriends, and she knew that I was going to be doing this show with you, and she sent me an Alan Watts um, YouTube video, and it's. It's about finding happiness or allowing happiness to, to enter into your life. And she said, this is you. Watch this. And it was just such mm. a beautiful message because we listen to a lot of Alan Watts. I've probably read seven or eight of his books and I have all of his audios. Yeah. Um, and so for her to just send that little message, you know, as she's driving down to Fort Lauderdale, it was just this little burst of, you know, the connection that we have with one another. It's beautiful. That's fucking beautiful. And Alan Watts is the man. How would your mother describe you and what you do? So we were going through, I just recently got married and we were going through the, the photographer just sent us our pictures from the wedding today. And I had the, the mother son dance and I was flipping through the photos and just to see the way that she was looking at me and I was looking at her um, my mother is, is whismic. She is like a, a goddess. And mm. I, I think about her in, um, in multiple facets. So she was a, a district manager for a pharmaceutical company, Pfizer, for over two decades and extremely wow. successful. You know, both of my parents came from that sales realm of, of winners, of go-getters, that kind of Tony Robbins mentality. And, right. and they were. And they were, but my mom has this ability to turn on some, some alchemy and she really can work some magic. Mm. Um, and so I think that she sees some of that divinity within me and really encourages me. She, she chose uh, a song that was Celine Dion, Just Dance, right? And it seems kind of like yeah. <laughs> corny, right? It's like that standard, 
wedding, you know, mother, son, but she, as she, we were dancing, she whispered to me, all I've ever wanted you to do in this world is just dance. Keep dancing. Oh my God. Yeah. Wow. And so she gets it. She gets this cosmic play of, you know, this, my, my mom is there. So she could see into it. Like this is a game. And when we allow ourselves yeah. to be in the game and, and play and dance, that's when we're happy. We allow happiness to um, reverberate through what we already are, which is that state, right? I could not agree more. And it's so beautiful that you have a mother that's tapped into that knowing. How would your father describe you and what you do? Interesting. Yeah. So, um, you know, I grew up an athlete and my dad was, was kind of my coach, right? And this is the 90s. And so heavy pressure on sports and, and, um, you know, and, and I went through this grieving period post nineties where I, you know, you have this vision of how you think life is once you get to 18 or high school or college. And I went through this grieving period, but my dad was, was an extremely, um, efficient coach and he knew how to get the best out of me on the field. Um, and so he's seen my sport. I played football and lacrosse and then I played lacrosse in college. And, and so it was this, um, you know, leaving it all out in the field. So he's seen my heart and he's seen me um, at, you know, my high highs. We won some state championships in football in high school. And, um, and then he's seen my downfall. You know, I got into to drugs and, and heavy addiction, alcoholism in my 20s when I was, I got into that same industry, Eric. I was selling um, scientific research instruments to academia biotech and, and major pharma companies, the, the stuff that makes the, and, and tests the, the pharmaceutical drugs. And so yeah. the, the big equipment. And so I had, um, you know, this, he's seen me through the ups and downs and I've seen some glimpses of his disappointment and some of this, but it, it's, it's been this, um, this constant, this constant cyclical hero's journey for me. And I think Absolutely. that when he takes a step back, he gets to see that, you know, I've, I've been going into the cave and coming out stronger and going into the cave and coming out stronger. And sometimes those orbits um, can last a little bit longer on the outer periphery of the solar system, <laughs> right? Going in a little yeah. darker. Um, but when I come back around, it's, uh, I could see that, you know, he could see some of himself in me. And I think that that gives him great joy. How would you describe God or spirit or whatever word, because I know that you've touched that experience, how would that thing describe you and what you're doing in the world? Hmm. Interesting. Were these like meat sacks that were given this limited ability of, to delineate information via the five senses, right? And what's, what's awesome about choosing a human body is that we get to interact into this relative world. Right. So my, from my studies and I, and I kind of have this, uh, Vedic, um, study that, that goes back a few years, um, Vedic philosophy and, and it's the, the Brahma, the, the, the ideas of the operators in nature. So Brahma's creation, Vishnu is maintenance and Shiva is destruction. And so mm. when, when there's creation that occurs, it's, we're taking on this body, right? We're this localized, um, localized version of what consciousness is and we're allowing it to work through us if we uh, if we do allow it 
And then if we take yeah. the reins in the, in the full animalistic nature of what we are, that's when we get greed and, and uh, we want to overtake, we want to be better than, we have fear. But what I think spirit would describe me as is a work in progress. <laughs> and, and, <laughs> and, and I know that you know, it's patience, if, if, there, if consciousness or d- divinity or if God had patience, um, it certainly would be using it with me. And I, and I think that, um, <laughs> when I allow myself to just let go, like when you and I are talking right now, I'm trying not to checkpoint through the intellect at all. What I'm saying, I, w- I would like stuff to just flow through me. And that's what I try and do when I teach or when I'm, when yeah. I'm interacting with people or, or, you know, it just in general. And, and then there's this process of remembering and forgetting that we have this built yeah. in, we have this built in forgetter. And that's what makes this whole journey beautiful. Because as soon as we yeah. enter into the birth cycle, you know, in the macrocosm, we had all of our lessons lined out. Here's what we want to learn. Here's the challenges. Here's the adversity. Here's what we'd like to experience. And then as soon as we come through the birth canal, it's like, damn, you, lights out. You forgot everything. And yeah, then the game man. starts. It's like the game yep. is on. And let's try and see if I could work through it this lifetime. I, I know I'm going to have a challenging relationship uh, you know, at some point. Don't know when. But it's coming, and, and I'm going to be able to work through my own stuff. And, and really, you know, with divinity and God and, and Brahma, what it is is like falling in love with another person. You know, there's there's two aspects to it. It can be because you know the the chemistry in the body, my own body feels good, and, and that woman makes me feel good. But ultimately, at a really deep Gyan Khan level, is that we're seeing ourselves in the other person. And that's what true love is, is divinity seeing itself in the other person. Amen. What do you remember as your first experience? Ah, great question. So I just recently did a post um, and and I wrote a little thing about it. There's a picture of me at about, it's somewhere between four or five years old. And I had, you know, my water wings on, my swimmies. And I'm out by yeah. a lake, and this is this is part of my first my first memories was my mom grew up in upstate New York, um, like near the Adirondacks, and and there's a lake out there called uh, Saranac Lake, and we used to drive up there as a family. So I moved around quite a bit growing up. I was born in Denver, Colorado. We moved to Chicago, Michigan, Pennsylvania, then New Jersey, all by age nine. And so um, wow. when we were when we were moving a lot, I just remembered there was like this anchored spot in my memory that we'd always go visit, you know, every summer was Saranac Lake, all my cousins were there, my aunts and uncles. And I just remember being out in the pier, and the ability to just be just kind of standing there out on the pier at the lake and or the dock and and just allowing the sun to hit me, and not worrying or thinking about what's next, not ruminating on what had just happened. And it was like, that's where that childhood, that's the inner essence of what we already are before we start packing on through societal influence and parental yeah. influence and friends and school and media. And, and before I start packing in all of these, these protectors and developing some type of personality. So it, it's that memory of being at the lake and just running around and not even thinking when's, when's dinner, when's lunch or or right. how am I, how's my bathing suit look? You know, n- nothing <laughs> of that nature. Just yeah. literally a walking, talking, running, swimming being. 
And what do you remember or associate as the primary feeling to that first experience? Bliss, just inner bliss. And, you know, there's times in my childhood where I remember wanting, you know, the, the next video game that was coming out or, um, you know, certain toys and, and feeling to get that, um, that validation or that, that feeling of joy coming from the outside in. But from that moment, I remember those, those moments in Saranac Lake where the feeling was coming from inside. And it was yeah. just, you know, chase, I would chase frogs for hours, Eric. I would just hunt them down and be around the lake, just really in nature, in, in the thick of it. And that was it. That was like pure inner bliss for me. I love that. And the first thing that pops up when I hear that is, you know, your inner being knew to go find the dragons, you know, and frogs are an archetypical symbol of, you know, the serpent, the dragon that transforms, but that's a different thread. Mm. The next question that it might be my favorite question to ask people is what was the first story either from a book you read or maybe a bedtime story you were told, but for most people it's a movie or a video game that you found really captured your attention as a child? Mm, good question. There was um, a book that my mom, my, so my mom used to read books to me at night, you know, when we were laying down for bed and she'd read to me until I kind of fell asleep. But there was a book that was called Where the Red Fern Grows. Mm. And kind of a, a staple in my childhood and, and she would be reading it. And I remember the storyline of, um, you know, she was just crying as she's reading and I'm crying Whoa. and here's her, you know, it's mother son. And that, and it's one of those moments where it's like less about the content in the book or the story that shifted me, but the connection between my mom and I that, that lived on it. And that's one where it was like, and she's read, you know, dozens of books to me when I was little, but that was one where she's crying, I'm crying, and she could barely flip the next page. Wow. Um, you know, and, and, and it was just such a, a deep moment for me, but um, one in which, you know, you could feel the experiences from the content in a book through sharing that, that shared experience with someone that you really love. Absolutely. And, you know, I've, I've, I've recorded over 100 episodes, and it's just now occurring to me how interesting and intuitive this instinct seems to be to read stories to your child right before they go dream. Like that seems to be an old ritual that no matter how industrialized we get, it still echoes with us. And I think it's because there's a part of us that understands that the stories that we have will influence the dreams that we have and the dreams that we have will influence the lives that we live. But that is also another thread. I'm, I'm very curious if you imagined um, your child or your future child was, you know, seven or eight and they were curious and intelligent and you were to tell them that story from your heart, not from your memory and not reading the book, could you share it with the listeners now as if you were telling it to your eight-year-old child? Yeah. So, and, and I do want to unpack what we were talking about in dream state as well. I, I'd like to dive into Absolutely. that if we have time. Um, 
Yeah. So there was a story that grandma would read to me when I was just your age, about seven years old. And she'd sit on the, the edge of the bed and sometimes lay down with me. And we'd read deep late into the night. And it's a book where the red fern grows. And when grandma was reading it to me, we had such a feeling of love and connection. And I'd like to share that with you. But what I do want to let you know is that it's very important to us. So we're passing this down to you in hopes that you'll pass this down to your child, this ritual. And it made grandma very emotional, made me very emotional. And I hope that one day um, you'll be able to share this with your children as well. So that's why we're going to be reading this. Eric, do I still have you? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I was waiting for you to tell the story. Oh, the, the story of where the red fern grows? Oh, yes, please. <laughs> Can I be honest with you? Yeah. I don't even remember the storyline now. So this is the beautiful thing. Um, the way that it is going to arise in you now will be uh, the perfect soil for um, the questions that will come after, you know, and just trust that you know it in your heart. So there, so there was a story of two dogs. And this young girl adopted these two dogs from the puppy farm when she was just about your age brought them home and loved them and cared for them, fed them, trained them. And she lived in a farmhouse out west, kind of tucked away in the mountains. And her father would work long days. Her mother would come home and, you know, after shopping at the local market, would cook a beautiful dinner. And the family had this amazing experience with one another. And so the dogs would go out by the ravine and play and and the young daughter would go out there and play with them. And what happened was the one winter, the storm came in and one of the dogs made it back. And they were worried because now this other, the, the other twin of this dog didn't make it back. And so the family had, had the fire going and dinner's been, been ate. And so the father and the daughter decide to go looking for the dog. And they trace the tracks and they're, they're out in the woods for hours, just trying to track it down. And the other dog is with it, sniffing, trying to find the scent. And they come upon the dog and it had been caught in a bear trap. High up in its leg, it had been snatched by the bear trap and it was suffering. And it had been out there in the cold for hours. And so the father knew what he had to do. It was an extremely difficult situation. This was his, his daughter's, you know, since they were puppies and now it's years later, had to terminate this dog's life. And to explain it to his daughter and the other dog that's there kind of can catch a little glimpse of what's going on, um, had his daughter kiss the dog goodbye and tell the dog how meaningful his experience was to her and then had her walk away and face the other direction and, and unfortunately had to take the dog's life. And they came back to the cabin and it was one of those situations where adversity had struck and although traumatic, it pulled the family closer together. And so during tough times like that, what we need to do 
is always stay close to the family and have each other's back. What do you think was happening in your mom when she was crying, when she told the story? I think my mom could feel it. She could feel the idea of loss, of grief. And anytime we hear a story and, and watch a movie or read a book, I think it's just in our genetics to relay it to our real life. It's like we have this yeah. program where we can just relate and, and, and play the story out as if it's ours. And I think she was just going through that and evoking that emotion and what was beautiful was that it was in the safe container of my bedroom and it was with her son and, and he was experiencing that as well. So we got to experience all the emotions of that story. However, they didn't actually take place, but the physiology of the body experienced it as if it did. And so yeah. what I think is really interesting is that there's like this cosmic glue that occurs, like the body ingrains that experience and then allows us to form a closer bond to one another through tragedy comes, comes connection and communion, right? Absolutely. And my deep intuition is that the story that most resonates with us as a child becomes the story that we unfold in the world. And because of what you shared about addiction, the thing that comes up in me is, you know, the two dogs, especially in dreams, dogs tend to represent like, our instinctual drives, like our instincts. And the thing that comes up in me is, uh, as we grow and develop, there were there are parts of us that when we were younger, were our guards, were our protectors, helped us get through, you know, the situation of childhood. But a part of becoming who we could be is we have to let those parts die. And the intuition in me is that you know, the death of the dog represented the part of you that you had to let go coming back from addiction. Yeah. So it was that <clears throat> that's a beautiful insight, Eric. And, it, and it's, and it couldn't be more in aligned with what actually happened. So I, I got injured playing lacrosse in college. I had a uh, uh, torn labrum. So I had labrum surgery. Um, so I was out for a while. And, you know, obviously you got painkillers and, and, and I really, I really enjoyed them. I liked them a lot. And when they ran out for me, it was easy to get more, uh, being on the lacrosse team and having some of the connections there it could, could just kind of get whatever I needed. And, um, I didn't stop. I kept taking them. And even after I graduated college and, and was in the workforce, the first interview I went on, I got the job, but it was like, my mask was getting me <laughs> everything in, in terms of like getting the job and presenting well and wearing a suit and talking in front of doctors. And, um, but inside I was this scared little boy who was running back home and, you know, you know, taking pills. And so, um, this went on for a good seven years, eight years. And, and I, and I had some, some tur turbulent times and my mom was in, in the thick with, in the thick of it with me, my sister, and, and my dad kind of knew what was going on, but I kept a ton of distance. And there was, there was an evening, this was in uh, February of 2012, I think, or 2013, when um, I hadn't been in contact with any of my family members. And my mom knew something was up. Yeah. She drove to my house. I, I lived in a townhouse alone. I was completely isolated. 
and opened the, you know, she had the garage code. She came in and I was overdosed on the couch. I had overdosed and I'd gotten into some harder stuff like heroin at that time. And, um, and, and I, I was dead. I was flatlined and they brought me back through, uh, there's a shot that's called Narcan. And, um, and so it was that story, I guess, right. Of the red, 100%. the red fern grows playing back out and this rebirth. And, and that was when I came down to Florida and, um, I mean, I was just so lost at the time. I knew whatever I was doing wasn't working, but I didn't know how to get on a path. I just had no idea. I knew that I needed to. I felt I felt that draw, and I just didn't know how to do it. And it was really just letting go of all of the old stuff. It was letting go of the stuff that was making me money or what I thought was keeping me safe or um, what I thought other people would think then I would, you know, if other people thought I was doing well, then I was doing well, right? I was, when, when that happened, Eric, I was ranked number one in the company for a fortune 500 in sales. Wow. Overdosed on my couch. And, um, it was two weeks before the national sales meeting. So I got, I took a plane down to Florida and, and got all of it detoxed out and went through a, you know, a men's program to, to take a look inward and worked with, some talk therapy and um, CBT and some of that psychological work. And then, um, and obviously abstaining from, from many drugs or alcohol. And, and that was when I found uh, meditation and that was really the turning point in my life. So a younger part of me would say that what I'm about to say is me over intellectualizing it. But um, because of some experiences that I've had later, I know this is my intuition, and so I'm just going to share it and not try to qualify it. Um, mythologically, um, and a father to a daughter, when it's in its positive archetype, represents spirit, like deep knowing. And there's a part of me that feels that it's so deeply poetic that when your mom was reading that to you as a child, that her higher self knew that this is the story that you two were going to play out together and that her archetypical father, her spirit, brought her to you when you were the dead dog and a part of, and, and, and she saved you. And the part, you know, a part of you died that day. And then the other half, the, the dog that survived, um, got to transform its life. And, you know, <clears throat> a younger part of me does not believe or would try to intellectualize this, but there's a deeper part of me that knows that it felt like her soul, when she told you that story, knew that this would be the story that you two would be unfolding. And that's why there were the tears. And it's beautiful how when we release ourselves to the Tao or to the dance, that these things unfold perfectly. And so I'm really curious, it sounds like the first call to adventure of the new version of you, the part that survived that death, was the call to meditation. Can you kind of tell us the story of that call? Yeah, yeah. So when I came down to Florida, I was, um, I started from ground zero again. I went from making, you know, well into the six figures and had motorcycles and cars and at my own townhouse. To, I was living in a halfway house with 12 other men sharing. I had a twin bed sharing a room <laughs> with another adult yeah. man and, and, and talk about humbling. I was working a, you know, a 
basically a nine to five in a cubicle at a call center for Verizon, you know, and it was just, and I was happy though. It was, um, the first time where I just felt like everything, all the, the clunk that was all the armor that I had stacked up was just off. And I was just happy to be me happy to be kind of free from that. And, um, and, 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 and that was when my journey, you know, of self-discovery started, but it, it really didn't truly start until I learned meditation. So I, I was down in there for a while, and, and then I started working in the behavioral health field. So I was doing um, business development. So it's essentially getting people that are struggling with addiction, alcoholism into a treatment center, right? And I was doing interventions. Um, and at that time, I was working for a, a bigger behavioral health institute. So this is now a year and a half, maybe almost two years into um, that, that big shift from February of my mom finding me. And this is now I'm, I'm working for a big uh, behavioral health Institute. I was out in, in a quick pause. LA. I'm sorry. I was, uh, it, it just seems yeah. so poetic that it happened in the winter in February. It, I, I know. And it, it is, um, yeah. And, and you know what it is, Eric, it's something that, you know, as you and I are kind of unpacking it now, it feels like it's been, um, something that's happened for lifetimes, you know, yeah, it's man. something in, 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 in different roles, whether I'm in that or not, it's just in the lineage of everything being you, you know, it's, it's experiencing that and, and the depth of it. And, and I think it's the reemergence, the, the creation operator in nature of, of really being able to experience the rebirth again and again and again. It is the hero's and journey. So was, yeah. Yeah. And so I, I was in um, Santa Monica, California. I was out there on a business trip and I'd been studying some f- different forms of meditation. So I got into Buddhism first and I was studying Shambhala and then I branched off into Shamatha and it's, it's kind of, you know, very focused, a little more structured, rigid meditation. Um, and, and so one of my uh, colleagues, she was like kind of a work wife at the time. She'd call me several times a day. She said, Hey Matt, what's going on? I said, I, um, in Santa Monica, where are you? She told me where she, and she said, you're into that like weird hippy dippy meditation <laughs> stuff, right? And I kind of, I laughed, you know, cause she was like a little more conservative and I laughed. I said, yeah. She said, listen, there's this guy coming into town. Um, he supposedly studied with Maharishi Mahesh Yogi for decades in India. I know that you're into it. You should go check him out. He's doing a talk at whatever black dog yoga studio. And I said, okay. So I remember sitting on the ground. I'd never done yoga before. I'd only been a sporadic meditator. And when I did meditate, it felt like a chore. Felt mm-hmm. like, I, like as I'm meditating, I'm thinking, is this what everyone else is thinking? Is this what's supposed to be happening? Is it right? It's like, am I supposed to be doing something more than? Um, and so there was like floor to ceiling windows and I could see this guy. We we're waiting. You know, he was maybe 10 minutes late. So the anticipation was building. Like, who is this guy? The, the room was packed. And I see him walking down the sidewalk. He had this huge white twisted beard, long linen shirt, kind of really um, trendy tight jeans. And he, and he walks in very casually, had a big mala on, and he sits down in the chair and he just flows, man. He just, he was just flowing. He didn't even pause to think about what he was saying. And I remember, I don't remember exactly the content of what he said. It's, you know, the basic intro talk of what we do as teachers, but it was his delivery. And then there was that one point where he said something that was so not funny. Like everyone, he said something that was kind of like a joke and he laughed and he laughed it out. He chuckled 
for a good amount of time, uncomfortably from the outside looking in, but he didn't give a Interesting. shit. And when he finished, when he finished his laugh, he came back, pulled it back in and kept flowing. And I remember thinking, I, I was always so worried about what other people thought about what I was presenting, what I was saying, how I'm mm. saying it, how are they taking it? Do they, do they like me? Is what I'm saying credible? All of these thoughts were always in my head when I'm talking. And I remember thinking, he really doesn't give a shit. I want some of whatever that is. So I spent four days um, in Santa Monica studying with him how to learn meditation. And it was the first time in my life I came back to Florida. It was the first time where I was meditating every day with no questions asked. And I, and I knew how to do it. And I felt comfortable in it. It was 20 minutes in the morning, 20 minutes in the evening. And it was just bam, bam. And it started to completely transform my life. It was just, it was like, it was like taking my, my life to another level. And the thing that comes up in me is that is kind of like the return with the boon is kind of the archetypical stage that comes up there, which is you're bringing back, you're integrating the thing that you witnessed that kind of transformed you. And I can't help but feel that the next call to adventure for you, once you had the boon of meditation, was the dance that has brought you to recently getting married. And so if you could kind of pull the thread on, once you had the meditation practice, uh, what was the call to adventure of, um, you know, diving into the love that you now have? Great question. And, and it was like a long twisted road to get For to sure. where I am, but I'll kind of breeze through some of it. I, I had been meditating for about a year consistently. I think I, I didn't miss any meditations in the first year. And um, my teacher was running a retreat through India. And my first real call to action was that. And, um, and it, was, it was this adventure that, that I could just feel I was getting pulled to. And I booked a, booked a plane ticket. And it was, it was from... Fort Lauderdale to Newark, New Jersey. And then there was a, a flight from Newark to um, Frankfurt, Germany to have a layover and Frankfurt, Germany to Chennai, India. So I flew on the runway. We had a delay out of Newark and I was thinking, oh my God, I'm going to miss my, my layover. So we land in Frankfurt and I am sprint. I mean, the Frankfurt yep. Germany airport is so huge. I was sprinting. Um, it felt like I was running for miles and I'm rolling my suitcase and I get to the gate and they had just closed the door and the plane, I could still see it through the glass and I'm begging with the flight attendant and she sends me to, to where their, their customer service is. It was Lufanza. And so I'm talking with the, the flight attendant. He's saying he was just getting off shift. I didn't realize this until after we were done, but he was not, he's like, you're going to have to get a hotel room, come back tomorrow. We'll see what we can do kind of thing. And I'm like, I got to fucking make it there. Like, I can't miss this. I got to, my, my group that I was meeting there was leaving for Pondicherry the next day. And, uh, which is like a six hour bus ride. So I had to make it. And so this woman next to him, um, was overhearing everything unbeknownst to me. And she said, sir, come here. And she pulled me over. She worked some kind of magic where she got me to Mumbai. And then from Mumbai, they got me to Chennai, but they lost my luggage. So I arrived in India and I had a backpack on, I had a toothbrush, an extra pair of boxers and a pair of shorts and, and, and headphones in my backpack. And uh, no, my luggage was nowhere to be yeah. found, couldn't find it. So 
I made it and, and it was just this. And, and you know, what's really um, kind of crazy is my first day there, my roommate and best friend um, overdosed. He had relapsed. He was, was a guy that I was living with in the townhouse. Um, he had relapsed after I'd left and, um, and, and overdosed and, and passed away. And I'd gotten the news right, right when I arrived on my first trip. And it was this, this inner struggle of like, do I hop right back on a plane and shoot right back home kind of thing? And so I, I had to go to my teacher and I sat down with him. And, and anytime I sat down with him one-on-one, I mean, he was just yeah. looking right through me. It was like, it didn't even matter what I said. He already kind of knew, kind of guru. And um, he could feel whatever I was feeling and he could sense it. And he said, I'll just ask you one question. If you head back home, are you... Uh, running away from or running back to. And then that was all he said. And so I went back to my room and I was thinking, am I running away from or running back to? And either way, the answers that I came up with weren't great. Because am I running away from the feeling by running, by flying back home and being with all of our friends and his mother and, and organizing everything? Or, or is, that, is that not dealing with it for me? And, um, so I sat on it for, for a good few hours and came back to my teacher and said, I think I need to really, um, deal with this one here. I need to really let it settle and, and, and live it. And so he nodded and and carried on. So I did, um, it was, it was like two weeks in India and, um, and it was just, I was like naked in, in multiple respects of not having clothes. I had to buy all Indian garb, but also, um, that, that feeling of losing, you know, losing the best friends, yeah. my best friend. And so, um, it was, it was a beautiful experience where the culture was vibrant and there was juxt- juxtaposition where you could be walking down one side street and you smell like the most putrid, um, you know, smells of, of sewage. And then literally 10 steps later, you get sh- stopped right in your tracks because it is the sweetest smell of Jasmine that you've ever smelled in your life. And so it was just taking my nervous system for a ride. It was just pulling it from all directions. And, and, and all the while I'm sitting with that feeling and allowing it to, to breathe, I'm not trying to force it out, not trying to stuff it down, but just letting it breathe there in these meditations I was doing. And, um, and I came back home and, and once I got integrated, I connected back with my teacher and he said, you know, you're going to end up being a teacher. And, um, and I said, I, I don't really, I hadn't really thought about that, uh, but you know, I, I'd like to study what, what you, what you know. And he said, let's start the study then and see mm-hmm. how it goes. And as soon as I started the study, I, I was studied with him for three years in Vedic meditation and um, made six trips to India. And so this hero's journey kept playing out over and over when I, every time I traveled to India, I packed less and less. And so I had like just a carry on, a small carry on and a backpack. And, um, and, at the end of my training, it was three months. So we were studying from 5 a.m. to 11 p.m. It was, it was uh, we were either translating Sanskrit, studying the Veda, the ancient knowledge, or we were meditating 14 hours a day, which we did for three weeks wow. straight at one point. So it was, you know, death of the ego over and over. People ask me, you know, what was that like? And, you know, we don't even have the the abilities to yeah. to talk about what something yeah. like that is like, and you know, through journeying and and experiencing stuff like that. But it is um, like as if I was falling apart to pieces, 
and putting myself back together every single day. And what was the step from there that um, was the introduction of this next major hero's journey that culminated in your marriage? Good. Yeah. So I, I guess I got to get back on track with answering <laughs> the question. So it was, I, I, I spent some time um, really just focusing on myself and, and I kept feeling like there was something big coming. Yeah. I could o- almost feel it. And I, and I, um, and I kept, you know, I kept an eye open for it, but I wasn't actively searching for any, any, anything serious like that. And, um, I was at a, a farmer's market. This is on a Saturday morning here in Florida. And I'm there with like eight, eight of my friends. And it was like a fitness festival and a green market, um, awesome outdoor event. And um, I see this woman walk across the street by herself. And I literally was just, it was like time slowed down. I see her walking across the street, long blonde hair, beautiful, um, almost like angelic. And she sat down on the seawall like 20 feet away from us by herself. She had her headphones in. And she's just kind of hanging out, listening to music. Like, I'm like, how is no one around her right now? And then like the mind starts For thinking, sure. right? And, and like the younger version of myself who read the book, The Game, <laughs> is like, okay, what's my pickup line? Okay, should I go over there? <laughs> what should I say? Okay, what's my opener? And, and like, I'm like, how do I open a set again? How do I do that? And I just relaxed. And, and I remember this woman, Emily, one of my um, buddy's wives was talking to me. And I don't even know what she was talking about because mm-hmm. I was thinking about <laughs> this woman on the seawall over there. And I said, I said, I'm nodding the whole way. I said, Emily, I'm sorry. Excuse me. I'll be back in just a minute. I'm sorry. And I start walking over and I had no plan. I'm just walking over. And um, I, I walk up to her and she takes her earbud out. Like she's like, you know, mm-hmm. hello kind of thing. And there was a bird that I guess I had clocked that was jumping around her like semicircle as I was like stalking her for the last <laughs> like seven minutes and she didn't notice it. And so when I came over, the, the bird was like four feet away, still looking at her and she took her, her uh, headphone out and she goes, and she's kind of like, yeah. And I said, Hey, I just came over. I don't know. Are you going to give him any attention or food? He's been hounding you for the last. And, and she just kind of smiled and chuckled. Um, when she looked at the birds, so I sat down and said, I just wanted to introduce myself. My name's Matt and, uh, just wanted to come over and say hi. And, and then it was just like an immediate communion. Like I, as soon as I touched her hand, I felt like, wow, this is felt really comfortable. You know, it felt like coming back home to me. And, um, <laughs> I, and, and, but don't, don't fret. So when I asked her out on the first date after getting her number, she said, wow. <laughs> and this is also Whoa. in February, Eric. Because on February 14th, I said, hey, no pressure. Um, I don't have a Valentine's Day date, but if you just want to grab food, like I was trying to be super casual in the text. <laughs> you just want to grab food and go out. And she said, uh, she said, she said, no, thank you. And I'm like, God, I felt like this connection with her. And so I tried a third time, like two days after that. We went out um, for dinner and um we we talked until like 2 a.m that night we just hung out and then we were like inseparable after that did she tell you why she said no the first time (laughs) yeah i give her a hard time about it i still you know i still joke around about it with her um she was kind of seeing someone and so she was you know she was single but you know kind of seeing someone and she had a date that night with interesting And what comes up in me is 
one of the <coughs> archetypical, you know, myths is always like the hero encounters the obstacle and has to ask multiple times, like whatever the, if it's a goddess or if it's an animal or if it's a gatekeeper, they will say no a couple of times. And, you know, the hero will have to redo the um, task a couple of times in order for it to then give way. And yeah, it's, it's so beautiful that it happened in February too. So I'm, I'm deeply interested. I think the marriage ceremony is something that we've had for a long time. And in myth, it's, it's one of the, so um, I've, I've been reading Hero with a Thousand Faces a couple of times actually um, in a row recently. And one of the archetypical, one of, one of the three potential deepest archetypical um, ordeal experiences that Joseph Campbell talks about from having read all the world mythologies is the sacred marriage. And it's the merging of the divine masculine and the divine feminine. And I think that there's a lot of cultural baggage to marriage, but at its core, I think, you know, it's, it's a symbolic act of two people accepting a divine invitation to do the work of reflecting the other half of, you know, the physical whole to the other. And I know that you recently got married. And so I'm curious, what was the unfolding for the two of you about how to go about creating that ceremony and then uh, what the ceremony was actually like? Yeah, that's a really great question. Uh, before I had met my wife, Elle, I had always just said, or at least even thought like, I don't even believe in marriage. There, yeah. It's this government, you know, you know, signature that they, and then you get a break on taxes. And I was kind of going through this whole cynical mindset about marriage. And, um, and, and then there's like the other swing of it in terms of our culture where you have two or 300 people and, and it's a, you know, $200,000 wedding. And I just, you know, we just sat with it for months thinking about, um, meditating and then coming out and talking about it of, of what we would really want, and what's important to us in, in the sacred union. And um, there's a, a story in the Veda where there's a, a god Durga who ties invisible bracelets around um, two soulmates in the hopes that they'll, when they connect, that they'll meet. And so we had this, this thread that, that ran through our, our wedding ceremony of tying the red bracelets and in, in Hinduism, they tie red bracelets around the wrist. Anytime you do a big ceremony or a puja ceremony or a big spiritual experience. And, um, what was really neat is we wanted to have this, this sacred experience where she was exchanging from her heart, how she felt and, and wanted to provide service to me and, and be of service to me. And I was doing the same in return. And, what was really magic about it? We only had 40 people. So it was really, um, it was family and really close friends. And we wanted people to witness this sacred exchange and to be invited in on it. And so it was less about, you know, the, the big parties and, the, and then this and that. But I had my sister who um, officiated the wedding. That was her 15th 
time officiating a wedding and she says she's now retired after that (laughs) i love that but um she she was she was standing there and she did such an amazing job so we, we were able to thread in some of the vedic philosophy into the ceremony and um really made it special and and we read our own vows to each other and um and so i love the idea of ritual and ceremony and although it can get a bad rap nowadays because of um, just like Christmas or, you know, any, any big holiday kind right. of gets distorted. But back to the core of it, when you get down to the core of it and you allow yourself to connect from divinity, your heart, your essence to that core, I think there's there's real wealth to be had. There. Absolutely. Would you be willing to share, um, it doesn't have to be verbatim, obviously, but what your commitment to service to your wife was or is? Um, I would love that. I could yeah. read you some of it. Okay. L. When I go back and take a look at us falling in love on the seawall and say, it's crazy. Because we don't say rising into love. There's mm. in it the idea of the fall and that there is always a curious tie at some point between the fall and the creation. The moment I take this step, I do so on an act of faith because I know that it is you who will be my sanctuary. I'm giving myself up to you, and this is the most powerful thing that can be done, surrender. And love is an act of surrender to another person, total abandonment, and I give myself to you. So you and I, L, come to the same strange conclusion that in the letting go, in the surrender to one another lies trust, love, and commitment. Together, let us build a home filled with learning, laughter, and light, shared freely with all who may live there. Let us be partners, friends, and lovers today and all the days that follow. Now that you have your sanctuary and in mythological terms, it's, you know, the hero coming back and accepting the role of being a king or a queen and taking responsibility for the health of everything that they oversee, which, you know, in some sense is their own psyche. And when you marry, it's the, not just your psyche and not just their psyche, but the container that you two have made the commitment to create. What do you see as the mission for you going forward from this new base, this new sanctuary? Um, what is your mission in the world? So what I, what I really love is that idea of, of the kingdom and the masculine and the feminine and that delicate dance and, and maintaining the importance of staying in your masculinity, the importance of her staying in her femininity and supporting each other in that, but allowing um, ourselves to both um, balance that out within ourselves, right? So it's the idea of um, that this true container of, of partnership, of love is, you know, allowing my, my cup to be filled with the meditation that I do on my own, the, the self-care therapy, um, breath work, everything that I'm doing to fill my cup up 
and supporting her and allowing her to have the space to, to do all that work on her own too, to fill her cup up. And then together we can spill those cups out and be of service to those around us. And so I think the, the utmost important thing is, is really having the space to work on yourself, to allow yourself to foster growth from within and, and creating space for my partner to do the same, to allow that, that seed to, to sprout and to flourish and to grow. And then together, once they're, they're filled, we can kind of intertwine uh, the vines and, and spread that out into the, into the world. I'd like to invite you to, um, you know, as an act of service to people listening, how would you invite people to use the deeply, deeply powerful tool of meditation? Like, you know, if there's a couple thousand people listening and you're going to share kind of like a condensed introduction into why and how you would invite them to meditate, would you be willing to do that? Absolutely. So um, the idea of meditation is that, it, and just to give everyone a broad stroke overview, it gets broken down into three main categories. So we have contemplative meditation, which are apps like Headspace, Calm, One Giant Mind, Insight Timer, YouTube videos is a form of contemplative meditation. If you go to a yoga studio and the instructor lies you down in Shavasana and they guide you through an experience in which you're in an open field, you could feel the sun on your face, smell the flowers, hear the birds, delineating information via the five senses. So with contemplative meditation, essentially what we're doing is inserting thoughts into the mind that are more charming than what is mm. whatever is currently going on. So that's a great practice to get started with. The only challenge with it is self-sufficiency. So if you don't have an app, if Sarah isn't teaching Thursday night at the yoga studio, or you don't have your computer to go on YouTube, you're most likely not meditating. The second form of, of, of meditation is mm. called concentrative meditation. So these are techniques that were designed for monks. And really a, a technique that was designed for monks is meant to be done 10 to 15 wow. hours a day. And so that's when you're scrolling down Instagram and you see a woman, you know, in a Lululemon outfit, sitting on a rock near a ravine, fancy finger <laughs> position, back fully erect. And <laughs> you could tell she's in like this extreme focus state. She got, she did that for the picture. But if you really want to meditate in that way to get 100% of the benefits, it needs to be done for 10 to 15 hours a day. So then you start thinking about return on investment. If you're only doing 10 to 15 minutes of a 10 to 15 hour technique, that's why most people aren't meditating because it's, it's a myth that you could just do it any way that you want and you'll get benefits from it. It's a technique just like swimming. So if someone didn't know how to swim, they wouldn't just rent a boat, jump into the water and see, I could just figure out swimming on my own. There's a technique or techniques to swimming. You get in the shallow end with an instructor, they show you body buoyancy, how to blow bubbles, how to float how to do front stroke, back stroke, flip turns. Then you could take those techniques and swim in any body of water. Same thing with throwing a baseball or swinging a, a golf club. There's techniques to meditation. And so with Vedic meditation that I teach is um, the idea of, of using a mantra. So mantra means mind vehicle. Manas, which is mind, mm. tra, which is vehicle. An orientating device to bring our minds from the surface down to the more subtle. 
And so the way it works is on the principle of traction because the mind is always being attracted to something or distracted away. But either way, it's on the principle of traction. So we give it something very attractive, something very charming, the mantra. And so when you're thinking this sound, and it works, I'll give you an example. Eric, if you and I were in my family room right now and we're listening to some very average music, right? Like you and I are talking casually and and Ace of Bass, uh, I saw the signs on in the background, right? It's like soft playing music, 90s music. And all of a sudden the front door to my house opens and you hear your favorite song. What is it? Mm, The intro by the XX. I love that song. Fantastic choice. Now that song comes on when the front door opens your mind is going to find greater charm. You're going to try and find out where in the song Mm. it is. You're going to start kind of moving to it. Whatever you and I were talking about and the music that's playing here in the family is falling by the wayside, right? So that's how meditation works Mm. with the mantra and thoughts. So every every human's having between 50 and 70,000 thoughts a day, 90% of which are recurring. But when you give it something more charming to, to bring awareness to, like the mantra, the mind starts to follow that vehicle mm. to a more subtle state of consciousness. And so as is the mind, so is the body. Absolutely. There's this psychosomatic effect, right? Mind-to-body connection. So my first date with L, I'm sitting at the dinner table and cracking my knuckles, biting my fingernails, tapping my foot under the table, busy mind, busy body, anxious mind, anxious body. The body's a direct printout yeah. of where the mind is at. So in meditation, it's the same but opposite. Quiet the mind de-excite the body and so when the body gets de-excited you're maximizing or optimizing Mm -hmm. your rest so rest is the antidote to stress right we want to lower the metabolic rate which is o2 intake body temperature and heart rate and that's when you allow order to to be created in the nervous system immune system kicks on and now you're repairing rejuvenating and releasing all the stresses all the samskaras that have been stored in the body Now, here's the kicker, right? Because stress, by definition, is an abnormality at the structural or material level. That's indicating that we store stresses directly in the body. When it gets releases, they get sort of like knots. When it gets releases, it gets released, it causes activity to occur. So that activity Hmm. brings the body back up to the surface. And as is the body, so is the mind. So now the mind starts to come back up. And as it does, it's recognizing the releases that just occurred and labeling them as thoughts. That's why thoughts are good in meditation. Interesting. They're evidence of stress being released in the body. What you do with those thoughts is what I Interesting. What I teach that in makes my a course. lot of sense. What's the third type? The mm. third type of meditation is mindfulness. So mindfulness is... Um, it's a branch of a concentrative meditation technique. So there was a, a sociologist in the 70s that came to India, studied in a monastery with monks. And these monks, they meditate 10 to 15 hours a day for five to seven years. And then their guru gives them practices Whoa. of mindfulness while they're eating, while they're walking. Once they've been established in being, right? They've been established in that state, that cosmic state. Now integrate mindfulness in. So the sociologist loved that part of it, plucked it, brought it back to the West and splashed it here. And it took, and it took like wildfire because it's a (laughs) little bit of a shortcut, right? What you're washing the dishes, just focus on washing the dishes. (laughs) And, um, and, and so 
mindfulness in my experience is a benefit of correct and consistent meditation because the definition of mindfulness is the art of bringing your awareness to the present moment. Yeah. A lot of people talk shit like that. Like I hear all these podcasts, just bring yourself to the present moment, just be in the moment. But how, you know, most people don't know how to be in the moment. How do I get there? Just swim, just swim. Right. That's beautiful. And that gives me a lot of, yeah, please go on. So what I, yeah, I was, I was going to say what we could even do is just a, a little short meditation, um, for your, for your guests. If, if they're please. viewing now and they want to do a little meditation with us, I could do a quick, you know, all right. So let's just go ahead, Eric. I'll have you, you just relax. Make sure you have some back support. Head and neck is free. Go ahead and close your eyes. Settle in. Begin to bring awareness to your breath without focusing, without concentrating. Simply witnessing the tactile sensations of the air entering the nostrils and exiting. And together, let's take three deep breaths. First one in through the nose, draw it deep into the stomach, expand it way out into the chest, and release. Good. Again, in through your nose, drawing it deep into the belly, expanding it way out into the chest. And release. Last one in through the nose, drawing it deep, deep into the belly, expanding it way out into the chest and hold and release. Allow your awareness to pick up on the sounds that you can hear in the space around you without grasping anything or pushing anything away. Invite a neutral orientation that allows your external environment to be exactly as it is. Know that you are safe and supported. Invite your awareness to feel the places where your body is making contact with the ground beneath you. Begin to sense the solidity of the earth. Welcome a deep breath into your lungs. And as you exhale, allow the weight of your bones to become heavy, like anchors as they descend deep into the earth. As you feel your body becoming heavy, 
Begin to notice the temperature of the air on your skin. Notice the flow of your breath coming in as a cool temperature running along the edges of your nostrils and being warmed by your body as the breath empties back out. Give your breath permission to continue to flow naturally and effortlessly, creating a bridge to open communication between your internal and external environments. Allow your senses to remain open, not shutting anything out and not keeping anything in. This is a safe container for you to completely relax and let go. Envision that your breath could flow freely through your entire body. Visualize this breath as a warm, healing light, bringing relaxation and ease to every part of your body that it touches. Visualize the light of your breath entering into your body through the crown of your head. Take a deep breath and allow this light to fill your head. As you breathe out, Allow the skin on your face to soften as the breath continues to swirl around your head. Allow the outer edges of your eyes to relax. Gently release any tension held in the jaw. Allow the tongue to rest in the lower palate. Take a deep breath in and allow the exhale to empty out through your mouth with a gentle sigh of relief. Good. As you take this next breath, draw the inhalation through the passageway of your throat, filling your chest and shoulders, and as you exhale, allow the breath to empty out from the center of your heart. Visualize this warm, glowing light traveling freely through your chest, out towards your shoulders, and moving freely down the inner lines of your arms into your palms and exhaling any tension out through the tips of your fingers. On the next inhalation, gently draw the light back up through your arms, along the back of your shoulders, through the back of the heart, and as you exhale once again, 
allow any tension in the heart to release. As you take this next inhale, Feel the light expand deep into the solar plexus. As you exhale, allow any sense of overstriving to dissolve. On the next breath, feel the energy of aliveness filling the solar plexus, bringing a fresh vitality into your body and exhaling a sense of ease down into your lower belly. As you inhale, visualize the presence of your breath filling the belly with a warm, healing energy. As you exhale, allow any anxiety or subtle clenching in that belly area to dissipate. On the next inhalation, envision the radiance of the breath filling the pelvic basin. As you exhale, let go of any unconscious gripping along the pelvic floor. Take a deep conscious breath into the center of the pelvis. As you exhale, allow the energy to travel down your legs releasing and relaxing any tension held in the thighs. Visualize this light traveling through the knees, streaming effortlessly down through the calves, past the ankles, into your feet. And as you exhale, do so all the way out through the tips of your toes, a deep breath and visualize this breath filling your entire body, experiencing your whole body as a body of light. With your exhale, allow this light to travel through your bones. As you continue to breathe, allow the frequency of this light to expand Visualize the light of your breath expanding deep into the most internal recess of yourself, expanding infinitely back out to the space around you with each exhale. Begin to feel the presence of this energy flowing above you, beneath you. around you and through you without obstruction this light flows freely you Eric are this light this light is your true self your true essence it is always here and never be threatened. Take a deep breath in as if to breathe directly into the center of yourself. And as you exhale, 
Allow the center of yourself to breathe out with a deep and welcome sigh of relief. Beautiful. Now with each passing breath, just continue to feel your vitality expand and your sense of ease continue to deepen. Allow yourself to just marinate in the powerful vibration of your own being. While keeping eyes closed, let's begin to bring awareness back to the body, wiggling the toes, touching the fingertips together, rolling the neck left to right, right to left. When you're ready and on your own time, slowly open the eyes. Guru Brahma, Guru Vishnu, Guru Devo Maheshwara, Guru Sakshat Param Brahma, Tadmai Shri Guru Venamaha, Kandamandalakaram Sakam, Shri Brahmanandam Sadam Sukadam Kevalam Gyan Moiti, Jai Guru Dev. Eric, you with I, us? Um, that was it. Thank you. So the greatest question that course the greatest question to ask ourselves after meditation is how we feel after not so much about dissecting mm. what happened during right how do you feel like now light. beautiful amen that's your medicine brother wow thank you happy to be of service the questions that i like to ask to energetically close out the podcast are a couple of word association questions and I don't even need to ask if that's okay. I know that it is. So I'm going to ask or say a word or a phrase. And if you could just share whatever the first thing is that comes to your heart. Word okay. or phrase that captures your life philosophy. Inspiration. Word or phrase that cuts to the core of who you are. What Love. is your ego most afraid of? Not being enough. What is your ego's most persistent problem? Fear. In your kingdom, in your tribe, are you the king, the warrior, the magician or the lover most? The magician. It all comes down to Love. success is
rich with family, with connection. Love is. Ever expanding. My vision. Consciousness. My medicine to share with the world. The most defining moment of my life. Rebirth. And this is the last question. It's got a couple of parts. Let's say that you know that it's your last day. You've lived to the end of your life. How would you want to spend that last day? And who would you want to spend it with? And then there's one last question to this question that I will ask at the end. I'd like to spend it in or around the ocean with everybody that has ever inspired me or connected with me that I've ever done the same with in return and everyone just being like I was on the dock at five. And if you could leave a single message on a piece of paper for your children at the end of that last day that they could read the following day after you've passed, what would you leave? Just dance. Matt, thank you so much for coming on and dancing. Thank you for allowing me to dance with you.